Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, folks, to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing? I'm very well, Grant. And how are you? Not too bad, despite everything that's going on around us. I know. Look, you know, world catastrophes. Never mind. Let's just move on. (laughs) I think we should because I think what we're about to be uh, hearing and learning all about is going to be absolutely fascinating and could even help us get out of the uh, catastrophes in the not-too-distant future. So. It is playing a part in nearly all aspects of life these days. That's certain. Indeed. So we're going to be talking about the application of artificial intelligence software in the food and beverage sector. AI has been bandied around for a while now as the promised land of efficiency and business growth, but often when pressed on what it actually means and how it is applied, there tends to be a lot of hand-waving and a bit of, you know, blah, blah, blah maths and uh, hopeful distraction. So today, we're going to be joined by Matt Michaelwich, the founder of AI software specialist Complexica. It has developed a software platform to deliver supply and demand optimization. When it launched in 2014, its first clients were in the food and beverage sector, and it's maintained that vertical ever since. Arnott's Group, Costa Group, Lion, Pernod Ricard, and PFD Foods, to name just a few. So let's welcome Matt. Hi, Matt. <laughs> Hey, Kim, how are you going? Very well indeed. Uh, Now, firstly, while AI might be new for some of us, you're a 25-year-old veteran and uh, you even grew up with it, didn't you? Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I'm uh, actually a a product of artificial intelligence in the sense that since 1982, when I was six years old, uh, my father's been an AI scientist. Uh, So I grew up in a university setting. I would go there after school uh, every day, sit in the corner, play video games, while my father had conversations about neural networks or the Turing test or machine learning techniques in his office with other professors or PhD students. So I really remember it from the very early days, and it's always been a part of the everyday vernacular at the dinner table and uh, the, the people that I spent time with. That's remarkable. I mean, for a small child to be in that environment, hearing about those sorts of topics would have just yeah, been It's amazing quite... it turned out okay. I'm really surprised at the end. It's, uh, I, was a, I was an I only child said... as well, so all of that was kind of oh, directed goodness. to me. <laughs> so, many, so many challenges to overcome, Matt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, look, I want us to start at the very, very beginning. AI, what is it? Yeah, this, the simplest uh, business definition is it's a, a field of research that tries to replicate the human body, the human experience or our species. And it's actually very old. It's it's uh, 70 plus years old, seven zero. And uh, and because if you think about the human body, it has uh, several key elements to it. The field of AI has been broken into these four major fields. One of them is robotics, which tries to replicate the mechanical movement of, uh, of, of the human body. The second is computer vision, which tries to replicate the visual system of the human being, the interpretation of imagery and so on. The third is natural language processing, which attempts to replicate speech. You can think of Siri, Alexa, Google Home, that those are all from that branch of AI. And the last one, and probably the most interesting, is cognitive systems, which attempt to replicate brain functions like pattern recognition, deduction, inference, decision-making. Those are all elements of the brain. So AI collectively tries to 
replicate artificially our biological being, but it's broken into these four major areas, each of them which has you know uh, tens of thousands of scientists working on that particular uh, direction. And Complexica, where is that? Where does that sit? It that? sits in the last one. So we we don't uh, we don't build robots. We don't do anything with moving or still imagery. Uh, we don't uh, do things with voice uh, or acoustic signals. We build software that help companies and people inside of companies to make better decisions. And that is an exclusive function of the brain. That's where decision making sits. Where you analyze information, you try to make predictions about the future. You run through different scenarios in your mind. That's the part of of uh, AI that we specialize in, and we put that into software to help people within businesses improve the quality of their decisions. So when AI did actually first start to really garner mainstream business attention, it rose very quickly to the top of the buzzword tree. There was a lot of pressure, I think, then within within companies from the C-suite or the board saying, what are we, what are we doing with AI? What, what, what's, a, what's our AI strategy? Um, has that changed at all as it's matured or is it still something you come across? Yeah, it, it, there's different companies and industries at different stages of maturity. So <clears throat> there's definitely still organizations that are discovering what AI is and trying to acquaint themselves with uh, <clears throat> different use cases. But generally, that hype has uh, overflown and spilled in the sense that the, there's wide, wider spread education and awareness of what it is. Like many of these boards and companies realized that they already had elements of AI in their business. Right. <laughs> so yeah, this is like, like many people don't realize that every credit card transaction that ever happened uh, for Visa and so forth was based on an AI system, on a neural network since, uh, you know, since the 80s. So some organizations, uh, uh, all of a sudden wanted to ask the question, what's our AI strategy, and discovered there were places in their business that already heavily relied on AI. So that was, that was very educational for them. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're here. <laughs> yeah, and think about yes. manufacturers, think about robotics, think about you know, agricultural growers. Some of them use uh, spectral analysis where they, where they use imagery of crops. So all of that is based on AI algorithms. So I think that the, there's been this sudden... Uh, awareness or sudden curiosity, sudden hype. What is it? How can we use it? What's our strategy? But AI has been slowly uh, penetrating businesses and government organizations for decades. And it's it's been a, a part of our everyday lives, actually, in a lot of places already. Uh, it's just the sudden uh, uh, interest in it that has come to the surface. So then when you're looking at the area that Complexica specialises in in terms of supply and demand optimization, which when it comes to food and beverage, I can't imagine there's actually a sector that would benefit from that more. What sort of companies are coming to you and, and then what sort of what sort of solutions are then at play for, you know, a, a food and beverage manufacturer? Yeah. So if the first thing that I want to say is uh, we're big believers that the quality of decisions that we make as human beings uh, determines the quality of the future that we experience, both at a personal level and uh, at a business level. If we make very poor decisions in our lives around uh, education, career choices, relationships, we, we generally kind of experience a future that's commensurate with that. And same in business. So uh, if we target the quality of decisions, then the biggest commercial value that can be unlocked in companies is generally those areas where the complexity of those decisions is the highest. That's the most difficult. And if we talk about uh, food 
food manufacturers in particular, there are three areas where really the complexity and scale of their decision-making lends itself very well to artificial intelligence. And those areas are sales, marketing, and supply chain. And, and, and I'll touch upon them very, very quickly. In sales, generally, a manufacturer has a sales force they're uh, contacting customers, prospective customers, and there is an enormous amount of intelligence that can be uh, injected into the sales function to uh, guide salespeople where to go, what conversations to have, how to engage with customers, the automatic analysis of information about customers. So there's an enormous amount of decisions that the sales function makes that can be improved through AI. In marketing, you've got pricing decisions promotional decisions, how much money you allocate to trade spend and so forth. All of that can be optimized and improved through AI algorithms and AI systems. And last is the whole area of actually producing a product, uh, the uh, production planning, production scheduling, forecasting, demand. Well, again, very complex decision making, very well suited to artificial intelligence algorithms. And, and uh, uh, food manufacturers, given that some of them might even be vertically integrated, like wine producers, for example, where they might own vineyards and they're actually an agricultural company and they have a whole lot of decisions that they need to make at an agricultural level before the product is even picked and begins a processing uh, sequence of, of steps. So you can, you can imagine that kind of whole chain of uh, of a product being grown, being picked, being processed, being turned into some kind of FMCG product, then going through uh, uh, wholesalers, logistics processes, and entering a retail and it's a consumer like me and you buying it. Think about all the decisions that are made in the chain of that product. And if you just improved all of those decisions, you could really uh, realize much better commercial outcomes. And that those are perfect applications for, for AI. What sort of scale are we working on here? In terms of uh, the benefit that can be gained for, from AI is uh, directly related to the scale and complexity. And it should come as no surprise that if you have a very simple business with, say, one product and you're selling that one product to 10 customers, then you, you, you could do it in pen and paper, all, all of this guy. But all of a sudden, if you're dealing with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of products, you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of customers, different stocking points, assemblies, pricing, promotions, the complexity scale has increased to the point where really the you need some kind of technology and the benefit of that technology is substantial. And in our experience uh, today, we found that companies generally that turn over 50 million and above usually can create very good business cases for artificial intelligence, but that number keeps coming down. So to put that into perspective, Kim, if, if we talked about AI 20 years ago, we would be talking about companies that are billion dollar plus in revenue. So, so with time, technology commoditizes itself. It becomes more accessible. It, it, it's cheaper. It becomes more mainstream. If, if you look at how much it costs to build a website in 1995 versus today, you know, it might be $100,000 in 1995. And today, if you know, probably $500 or $1,000, you could get a website. Uh, look at the first calculator. They cost $10,000. The first computers. Now calculators are free. They're on phones and so forth. You know, the average mobile phone has more computing power than NASA did when they put the man on the moon. AI will be like that. AI started off very expensive decades ago. It's very affordable today. If I had to predict 20 years from now, it will be everywhere, just like computers and calculators are everywhere. You, there will be no business that you will find without AI 20 years from now. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about an application, say, for a, for an FMCG company that has a large range of SKUs. 
and multiple sales channels. How would they implement an AI project or solution in that in that setting to really capitalize on that on their knowledge? Yeah, it's a great question, and and uh, I'll start by saying that businesses should always look at uh, uh, the identify the business problem first, the oper- and then work backwards into the technology. So I'm a I'm very pragmatic, and I've always I've, I've got a business uh, education, and I always look at things through a business lens. I look at technology as a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. So if we look at a, a food manufacturer, where are the areas where clearly improvement can be realized in those companies. In many uh, food manufacturers, the cost of the product is a very big line item. Uh, Labor is a very big line item. Trade spend into trade promotions is usually a huge item in FMCG companies, uh, the uh, production processes. So if you look at all of those areas, they're generally undertaken in spreadsheets, very inefficient processes. The quality of those decisions, despite good people uh, working in those areas, is usually suboptimal. It'd be very rare for you to go into a company in a complex environment and someone just intuitively is making optimized decisions. So generally, a company might say, hey, we think we can optimize our trade promotions, the, the way we promote our products in retailers, the frequency of those promotions, the types of promotions, the depth of discounts, and so forth. And, and to optimize that you need a really sophisticated tool like you you need to be able to make predictions on how these promotions will perform you need to predict elasticities if i drop the price i'll sell this much more cannibalization how it will affect the rest of your portfolio you might be optimizing price and how so this is a really complicated (laughs) kind of problem to to, to solve and and it doesn't lend itself well to pen and paper and spreadsheets in terms of solving it so a company might say hey we know without a doubt that there is significant uh, benefit we can extract from optimizing our trade spend. And we want to have a tool that allows us to do that. So that's the problem. That's the, the thing that a company wants to solve. And then they'll look at what are the technologies available to us to solve this problem effectively and realize the business benefit. And they'll quickly find that AI-driven systems come top of the list. Because those are the systems that are best able to predict, best able to optimize, best able to support them in the decision-making process. Another, another food manufacturer can, might say, our biggest problem is accurately forecasting demand. Because if we don't know what we're going to sell, we can't make the right product, we can't make the right quantity, we don't know when to, to make that. That's our biggest challenge. So again, they've identified the problem. Now they're going to look for the technology. And again, they're, they're very likely to find AI-driven demand forecasting systems will come top of the list in terms of benefit and meeting their needs. So this is generally the thinking that a company should have and, and the thought process of when they think about AI. Think about the business problem first, the application area. Where is the complexity and value in your organization? And then look at the technology, not the other way around. And so when a company does that, because obviously uh, the, you're then utilising algorithms to to then work out the best you know model or the best solutions for that yep, for those challenges. Decision. What's going into that algorithm? Is it is it data from across the sector, or is it just data from that business, or where does 
where does it come from? The best results in our experience can be realized when you combine the data that a business has, like a food manufacturer, along with external data. And external data might be, uh, in, and by the way, when I say uh, the best results, I'm talking about uh, the accuracy of the predictions that you're going to make. So that's the measure. We want to accurately predict what will happen in the future if we make different decisions. And if we just use our own data, we generally find that we're missing pieces of the puzzle. We might find weather plays a, a big role. There's uh, impact around social uh, economic demographics from census data. There might be data sets from competitors that are important when they ran promotions and what their promotions were and so forth. So the best results in our experience are gained when we combine these data sets together and build a predictive model from these combined data sets to predict what will happen in the future under different possible decisions that uh, are available to us. And then we use optimization technology over that to evaluate billions of possible decisions to find the one that maximizes your performance in the marketplace. When you reach that point, is there ever a sort of stunned mullet phase, like where people, where you know, companies go, well, we weren't expecting that? Yes. Yeah. That, that, this, <laughs> I, I, absolutely. I'm sorry, and, but that's so cool. I'd but, be wanting that. <laughs> no, but, but your point is uh, is such a good one, and uh, and actually, you've raised an incredibly important uh, element of uh, data driven decision making. People generally have biases and people are creatures of habit. And we generally do things in a, in a repetitive way, in a very similar way, like promotions. We generally take what we did last year and we tweak it for the following year. That's, that's the, the process. Where a machine doesn't have these kind of biases. It doesn't have uh, the, the, uh, an education that it was taught to uh, do things in a certain way. It is just looking for the decision that will maximize the result for you. And sometimes it will propose things that are so counterintuitive and you would have never thought of doing it that way, but that's where the value is. That is, ex- that is a point of great value recognition, realization where you, from a machine, you get a recommended decision that you know you would have never come up with that kind of decision yourself, and you can clearly see it's a better decision than what you would have made. That is a fantastic uh, scenario that really proves the value of the technology. I love that. Like, I love that there seems to always be the that point of friction between humans and once you're starting to use machine learning and, and AI and that, you know, that the AI is going to replace or take over. But when you're telling us that situation, to me, that is then empowering the people within the company or within to really achieve remarkable things for themselves professionally, but also for the company. Yeah. We, we, don't, we don't see ourselves as a company where we automate labor. We augment labor because the, the, we believe the world has gotten to such a point, Kim, where no human being can evaluate all the available data when making a decision. There's just too, there's too much data. The velocity of that data is too great. There's too much complexity. So then you provide a piece of technology that does that evaluation, but it only makes a recommendation. And then it's up to these human experts, the category managers, supply chain planners, demand planners, uh, salespeople, etc. They make the decision, but they have the benefit of a piece of technology that has analyzed all of this data and information and made some recommendations to them. You know, I, I use this analogy, Kim, wouldn't it be great if we were salespeople and we went to sleep at night and the machine analyzed 
all of the available data about our customers, their transactions, what they put on social media, their trends and everything. And we wake up in the morning, Kim, and the machine emails or SMSs to us some problems and opportunities based upon all of this analysis in the marketplace. That's that's one of our products. And you know, companies like Dulux or Banzo PFD, they, they use this product. And so we can't uh, replace the salesperson because the salesperson still needs to get in their car, go see the customers and do the things that machine can. But now they've got the benefit of all of these intelligence and automated analysis. So we're, we find it exciting to augment uh, the human capability for data processing and decision making. And I think that's something, uh, you know, you touched on it before about the biases that we bring into our lives and our decision making every day, and it, and it is. It's and it's also the fact that humans tend to be incredibly uh, loss averse. We don't, you know, we're going to play. We're going to play it safe before we're going to take a risk. And the opportunities of taking that risk and taking it when you have a truckload of data and analysis to back it up is. I just think that just opens up so much potential for for companies by just taking out some of those human traits that make us who we are, but, you know, sometimes do inhibit us. Yeah. The, the point you made before about, uh, you know, counterintuitive uh, recommendations, one of the latest areas of artificial intelligence research is uh, to make the recommendations self-explainable. So in other words, for the system to explain itself to a user why a decision is being recommended, because you can imagine you've done a, a certain job a certain way for 20 years, and then a machine comes along and it says, no, 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 you should do this completely differently. Uh, forget everything that you've been doing before. We're going to do it now in a completely different way because we're going to optimize it, better decisions. Well, what happens in that environment is rejection happens. The, 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 the user says, well, I'm not going to do it that way. I, what does this machine know? I know, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. So to ease that friction and uh, to accommodate and facilitate change management, what AI is now doing is actually allowing itself to, to explain the reasons behind the decisions. You should do this because of this, because of that, because of these particular factors. And then the human operator looks at that and says, oh, yeah, that makes absolute sense. That is what I should do. So I love this kind of interaction, this interface between the human and the machine and how they work together to make the decision. I, I think that's an aspect of it that is really overlooked or not really talked about. Um, I think there's a lot of discussion about, you know, people, you know, being worried that it's going to take their job. And um, I think in, in, this, in these situations, it really um, has huge potential to, in, in, you know, enrich their job. And, and, and I think this kind of viewpoint in general that technology is going to displace me, I mean, that's a very... Uh, old fear. It even predates uh, um, computers, you know, even in, in the industrial revolution when the steam engine came about and so forth. And uh, capitalism is structured in such a way where the board of directors has to increase the value of the corporation, do things in the best interest of shareholders. So companies are looking for efficiencies. They're looking to do things better. And it's inevitable that through innovation, forget artificial intelligence, but just innovation in general, efficiencies will happen in, in different areas. But that doesn't mean that entire uh, those jobs that, uh, like, for example, if your job was to add numbers together, then yes, you would have been replaced by a calculator. 
But then there was a whole lot of other jobs created to manufacture calculators, circuit boards, and, and so forth. So there's, uh, I think, the fear that people will be replaced in decision making is uh, is ill founded because at the end, you know, you want people making these decisions. But I think uh, we need to recognize that the technology will continue to advance every year, not just in AI, but in all areas, in robotics and 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 so forth. Because companies want to be more competitive, they want to be more efficient, they they want to do things better in a more profitable way, and they're continuously looking for improvement. So this is a feature and a fear that's been around for a long, long time. Oh my God, I'm going to be displaced by technology, and I and I don't think it's going to go away now, and it's not going to go away in the future. And it just so happens that today it's it, it's talked about in the context of AI versus the steam engine or a calculator or a computer. When you're working with a company, what what's what sort of timeframes are you looking at? For a project, it, it depends on the scale of the company and the scale of the project. But the uh, shortest projects might be three months, and the longest projects might last a year or a year and a half. Uh, um, each uh, system, how many products, how, how many geographies, uh, how how much of their business do they want to uh, put into these models and systems to improve decision making? So the bigger things become, the longer they take, and for each. Uh, 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 product or each module, you have to train the algorithms, you have to get the data, you have to tune it, you have to test it and so forth, all of which takes time. You need to integrate the systems to the other IT systems within these companies, ERP systems, CRM systems and so forth. So when you deal with large companies, you're generally dealing with longer time frames to implement bigger systems uh, to address an area of complexity by some number of people. It's not something that you can, unfortunately, today that you can, you know, send someone uh, a file, they download it, they open the application and bang, here, off, off, yeah. off we go. That, that might be the case in 20 years, you know, when everyone yeah. has it and it becomes accessible, but, uh, but not today. That will be you in 20 years saying to, you know, your offspring, I remember when. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's right. It's uh, God, you know, I, I uh, uh, taught my uh, older son uh, how to drive a manual. And, uh, and then he called me uh, old. Uh, uh, it's, you know, something unrelated to cars. He said, Oh, God, Dad, you're so old. You know, you don't know anything. And I said, <laughs> to him, and I said to him, you know, you know what, in 20 years from now, or 30 years from now, uh, you'll be telling your son, you know, I remember when I was a, a young uh, kid, and my father took me into the country in a petrol-powered car uh, and a manual transmission and taught me how to drive it. And then your son will say, <laughs> Papa, you're so old. You're so old. Everything's electric and driverless. God, what, you know, what century are you from? <laughs> Do you know, just earlier when you were talking about the, um, you know, the, the notion of as someone who's been doing something for 20 years, looking at this algorithm and going, oh, you know, it's, I've been doing it like this for 20. And I'm like, oh, my, oh, it's a parent-child relationship. <laughs> that was my immediate thought was this is like, you know, you don't know anything. I'm going to the algorithm saying, you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, saying, oh, you know, you're so old. <laughs> that is the, 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 there is a there is an element of that uh, to that and I think I think just as human beings generally we find comfort in routine we find comfort in habit uh, in, in in things being repetitive because they're easy they require less thought less friction less less effort so we gravitate to doing things in some kind of repetitive way and unfortunately in business that is seldom the optimal way of doing things this is seldom the optimal decision usually there's 
uh, much better decisions that people just are not going to hit upon because we're stuck in routines, we're stuck in habits, we're stuck in ways of, of, of doing it. And the moment a machine comes along and shows them how to do something differently, you're absolutely right. To- total regret. What, what do you know? <laughs> Well, look, Matt, this has just been such a great conversation and I and I hope for a lot of our listeners it's had that real light bulb moment as well of like going, oh, I get it now because it's, it is an area that is, um, like so many, moving really quickly and, uh, and appearing and infiltrating so much of what we do. And really, knowledge is power. It removes power fear, it increases excitement and um, innovation. And so it's, yeah, it's really fascinating to get some insights. And thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure, Kim. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thanks, Matt. And thanks, Kim. It's been a fascinating episode to sit here and listen in on. So really appreciate your time. And of course, thanks especially to the audience that have joined us for this episode. We'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. But until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.